Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. On November the 3rd, 2016, from Coolidge, Arizona, we're getting rain tonight. For here, that's a wonderful, wonderful evening. We're in Revelation chapter 15, trying to finish up that chapter tonight, if we can. And uh, that would be uh, lesson number two from part six or episode 109, if you put all of the lessons together. So we've covered a lot of material. Last week we gave you a chart from Simmons, and I would just suggest that you take time and read it again so that you get an idea of where he's coming from. Uh, His book um, is an excellent excellent book, and that was um, on the previous lesson. Uh, at the beginning of that lesson, we have that name and the, and the um, Kurt Simmons name as the author. <clears throat> Today, we want to just take a real quick view review of verses 1 to 4, and then uh, we'll plug right in, and, and I think we can finish this chapter up. So we have in verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, <clears throat> great and marvelous, Seven angels, you had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished or completed. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast, his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now there's a vision for you. That first of all, you have these people who have experienced probably martyrdom. Does anybody know what that word means? It means something that you believe in so strongly you are willing to die for it. Anybody have a belief that strong? You mean martyrdom? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. Isn't that the same word as when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses? You, the same word. And, and, that's, and that's, of course, the idea behind witnesses is, is having such a strong conviction that you'll hold to it in the midst of fire, even if it means death. <clears throat> that means that these people were willing to stand alone for what they believed and That's a conviction that we need to instill in all of our youth today, as well as all of our folks. Conviction on those things that matter, but a a conviction that is so deep that you'll stand for it, even if it means you're going to suffer for it. We don't have much suffering today, and that's one reason why the church is weak. 
we need to be instilling that character that not a stubbornness. Now, there's a whole different thing. But a stubbornness is just holding on to something because, you know, how you feel about it. But I mean a conviction. So you have, you have these enemies in verse 2, and they're, they're the beast, the image, and the number of the beast, those three things, three, all of those enemies there. These people had been victorious over them in the fact that they had died and held on to their belief. That's what I'm suggesting here. <clears throat> and what that tells us is that the, vis- the vision here is that there is life after death. It's real. And the victory is secure for those who have died as the result of their convictions. We need conviction, we need consecration, and we need courage, the three C's of Christendom today. Make a sermon on that, will you? Those three again? Um, um, what would I say? Character, courage, and conviction? Consecration. Uh, or conviction first. Consecration to that conviction. And then courage to stand up. Those three things. Kids ought to memorize that. Put to the test. Without being ornery or stubborn. A lot of folks can be stubborn. What's the best definition for consecration? Consecration? Consecration. Consecrated. Is that pure, whole? Uh, Yeah. Like uh, concentrate with the... It it means having a, you know, in, in modern language, getting your head wrapped around it to the point where it means something to you. Wrap your head around it. Yeah. I don't like that really, but that's kind of how people talk today. You know, get your get your head around that or get your brain around that or something. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The consecration is that kind of thing. And I, I think that uh, uh, <clears throat> consecration, consecration is having that ideal so strong that it becomes a conviction. And that strength is the conviction. It's more than just emotion. There's a lot of information and understanding that's involved. Oh, that's right. You it's have deeper to, than emotion. That's oh, much stronger than emotion. Yeah, but certainly emotion involved is involved. Which is all the stubbornness. That stubbornness is just uh, actually um, a form of rebellion. You want to know? Let me read a verse to you. No, I think I can. Let's go to. Um, 1 Samuel 15. Now, I may I may be way off base here. Oh, no, it is. It's here. I was lucky. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22. Now, if you get, get me off on too many rabbit trails tonight, I'll, never, I'll not finish this. But this is worthwhile, folks, because when we read this, we read it too quickly. We need to stop and get ourselves put into this situation that how and why these people were victorious is that they had a they, they had a consecration 
that gave them their conviction. They stood by their conviction because they had the courage of that conviction. Now notice here in verse uh, first, uh, first Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel said, "Has the Lord?" And of course, this this is breaking into the middle of this thing. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Now that has to be the root of your consecration. Then he goes on to say, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. In fact, people like to sacrifice because it gives to them that uh, uh, self-debasement, that feeling sorry for yourself. Love to be victims. Love to be victims. I was thinking more like along the lines of the giving something up for Lent or something. There you go, yeah. But that's pretty. That that's pretty mild sacrifice, you know. There's no bloodshed in that. <laughs> giving up something for Lent, okay. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To simply be obedient, and to heed than the fat of rams. For now, verse 23 is the the line that we're after. For rebellion. is as as the sin of divination and insubordination. That happens in all walks of life. That rebelliousness has to be dealt with. Insubordination has to be dealt with. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry whether it's in the home or anywhere else. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and because of that, he has also rejected you from being king. And, of course, that's Samuel talking to Saul. So back to the the, the punchline, rebellion is that the sin of divination and insubordination, and that's stubbornness. It's actually just acting on being, being... being uh, uh, uninformed and wanting to persist in the lack of information with your belief system. You've probably never known anybody like that who was stubborn. No. Yeah, I know. I know that you haven't. Oh, no. Never met anybody stubborn. So rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, these people had overcome that, and here they were put to the test, and they they were put to the test by three agencies, and what are those? Name them quickly. The beast, the image, and the number, and in in the big picture, the beast represents what? From where we've been before. Rome, but but in the but in the the bigger picture than that. That that's narrowing it down. But it means any it, initially it simply means any tyrannical power. Okay. And of course Rome was that. 
whether it's civil or religious. Both together. What's that? Or both of them together. Or both together. of them together, as was the case in where we've been before. And the image is something that what? The big picture is simply something that identifies the mark of the beast. Now, we narrowed it down in our previous text as to being who in specifically. Nero. I'm talking, no, I'm talking about the image yet, but the number is true too. The number, the Nero was the number, uh, or the, the, um, the number represents Nero as well, the mark. So all of those things, all of that combined in all of the uh, comprehensiveness of each of those terms, these people had been victorious, but they hadn't been victorious because they had survived, but they had died. They had died out of their consecration to what they believed was right, out of their conviction that it was right, and out of the courage to stand no matter what. That's the kind of character we need to build that we are willing to stand uh, stand for something even if we stand alone for it. That's the test of whether your belief is valid. Paul meant when he said, be not conformed to the world. That's right. That's right. That's a good, that's a good one there. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it shape you. And we find that, in you know, it, it, in all of walks of life, but we're in an election period. You probably haven't noticed that. This is uh, November 03, 2016, and if you're alive today and you're breathing, you probably are aware that there is an election coming up. <clears throat> but it doesn't make any difference. But, you know, there's a conformity that everybody is trying to get you to agree to. We have to know what is right and stand for what is right and be so consecrated to it that it gives, we have our conviction in that, stand for it all the way down, even if it means our death. Now, when we get, when we get that frame of mind, there, there will be a life that you just don't find in any other people. That's the source of really living, is when you have something that you can be consecrated to, devoted to, that you have a conviction for, and you have the courage to stand for it. Now, that means that you're going to allow other people to do the same thing. But it means that you know where you are and you are comfortable with where you are, but you don't become stubborn in that. Neil and I were talking before class tonight about some of the, you know, the various changes that we've had to make over the years. Don't you always? Yeah, you're always having, you're always having to make adjustments. And um, that's just the way it is. There's so much to learn, and we, we don't want to shut ourselves off from what there is out there to learn. But we have to, we have, to have something that is so real to us that we're willing to die for it. 
then that's what carries us over the rough spots. And if we don't get carried over those rough spots and the rough spots overtake us, then we can say we understand what verse 2 is talking about. These people were had, had been put to death, and I'm saying that most likely, and, and they were standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. They stood, they had stood the test, they had not crumbled. Novel idea. Okay, we spent enough time on that. Let's go on. And they sang the song of Moses. This is the combined song, the bondservant of God, talking about Moses, and the song of the Lamb. They're still combined. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways. And I'm talking now that I want you to make sure you get your feet on. I mean, and, and, I mean you're sitting down, you got your feet down. That the righteous acts of the seven bowls of wrath are the great and marvelous works of the Lord God, the Almighty. Now notice in verse 4, we'll come back to this. Who will not fear? Now you see, immediately the question is, who will not fear? That is, the righteous and true are your ways. And he's talking about here in the context of the emptying of the bowls of the wrath of God, that these ways, this, this wrath of God poured out upon, in this condition, upon these people, were righteous and true in his ways. Who will not fear? And because of this, glorify your name. Folks, if we don't see in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the righteous and true action of God. We're missing the point. If it's something else, but he's talking about that in this context. So all the nations will come in verse 4 and will come and worship before you for your righteous acts. Now that is, again, your righteous acts, because he's righteous and true, your righteous acts have been revealed. Been revealed through the pouring out of his wrath through these seven bowls. Now, if, if we veil, this is what I meant to say a minute ago and I, I lost my thought. If we veil the acts of revelation, and the acts of the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath of God, if we veil those acts by pushing them, and how do we do that? By pushing them into our future. We have neutralized the impact of what's taking place here. It's through what is taking place here that we come to recognize that God's ways are righteous and true, as righteous acts are being revealed here, and to us they have been revealed then. Isn't that killing two birds with one stone? 
What's wrong with that? Plenty in this case. Yeah. Because not only do you take the emphasis off away, take the emphasis away from what was happening then, but you, you know you falsify yourself and whoever believes you by putting it somewhere else. You do. That's right. I guess that's two birds with one stone. You know, you get that right. Why? Well, I think you get a lot of it right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> and this is somewhat redundant for some of you folks who are in the Sunday morning class. <clears throat> but Hebrews chapter uh, uh, chapter um, 9 and verse 8. Because now we introduce... Verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean, clean and bright, girded, girded around their chests with golden sashes. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 8. <clears throat> I think we discussed this Sunday morning in the Acts class as well, but I think it's appropriate here. Let's just get, a, let's get, get an image here of what's going on. We're starting tonight's lesson with verse 5 and Hebrews 9, 8 first. The Holy Spirit, and I'm going to add here that, you know, the capitalization shouldn't be there. But what he's talking about is that it's an ex it's, this is an expression of God. That's why it's called the Holy Spirit, not as a separate entity, but as the very expression of God, signifying this. It's an agreement with all that God is, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. For how long? While the tabernacle was still standing. All right. <clears throat> so there isn't a complete picture of redemption until what takes place? And, until the until the temple is what? Until the house is gone. Until the house is gone. And notice verse 9. Because this is a symbol for the present time. That's <clears throat> our present time, right? No. You don't think he's referring to 2,000 years later there. I know. I think he was, yeah. And, and then he says in verse 11, And when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation. 
Now, if you would go to verse 11 in the Greek, I want to I want to check something out, and I don't want to get too bogged down, but I, I just had a thought that I want to check. Uh, verse 2 of uh, chapter 9 and verse um, 11, and I want the word to come. Okay. Okay, we're just going to leave that alone. <clears throat> so we we have the idea here that the temple, the tabernacle, and later the temple, were replicas of what was real in heaven. Let's go to verse 23 of chapter 9. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens. See, there you go. There you go. Isn't that what I just said? And I also want to check verse 24 in the Greek, too. Uh, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's simply telling us, first of all, that what we saw under the Mosaic Age as the tabernacle, and then under um, Solomon, the temple, they were copies, copies. What does that mean? They, they were duplications or symbols of something that was helping us understand what heaven is like. All right, now uh, if in verse 24 in the Greek, I wanted to check uh, a little word there uh, to appear. And here again, I, um, okay, I just wanted, wanted to make sure I wasn't off base on that. Okay, let's go on. Let's read another one in over in uh, chapter 8 of Hebrews, and then we'll move. And I think most of you folks are familiar with this because this is kind of the summary in chapter 8 of Romans and verse 5. That these serve as a copy and a shadow of what? Of heavenly things. And then he says, you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mount. See, there is a pattern. They were to be replicas of that pattern. They were to be exact replicas of that pattern. They were not to show any leniency on altering any detail, and we approached that some, I think, last week. We don't mess with God and his plan. The church is to be as true to the pattern as they were to their pattern. So that gives us an idea of the temple, why why we can have a tabernacle in heaven as well as the one that we're familiar with and that the Jews were familiar with because the, the one was a replica of the other. So here we have a testimony in heaven was open. It wasn't to admit people, but was to send forth judgment because that's what he's getting ready to do.
And so the seven and the seven angels who had this verse six. So the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. And by these plagues are known as what now? They're 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 known as the vials in in earlier part of the book, and now they're they're being introduced as the bowls of God's wrath. And they're now they're calling those the vials and the bowls the plagues the seven plagues and we went into the old testament in leviticus last week i think uh, if we didn't we should have uh, probably won't take time for well maybe we will but anyway they had the they had the seven plagues and they came out of the temple and notice how they were clothed these seven angels they came out of the temple they were clothed in linen clean and bright, girded around their chest with golden sashes. God does note how people dress. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13. We've been here before. Notice how this one is described in chapter 1 and verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed. In a, and, and now he's going to tell us about his clothing. In a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And that goes on to tell us more about what his appearance was. Now let's go all the way back to Leviticus. Now who is that talking about in Revelation 1.13? All right, that's referring to Christ. Let's go to um, Leviticus uh, chapter 16 and verse 4. And he shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban, These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. What does he do first here? What? Bathe. He bathes his body in water first. And then what does he do? He puts on the right clothing. God is cognizant of clothing. And we have to be careful we don't go overboard one way or the other on that. But you know, the word modest talked about in in um, Timothy. You know what the word modest means? It means appropriate for the occasion. Now, if you're working with tools in the shop, you're probably probably not going to be doing that with a tuxedo. Would that be appropriate? Not appropriate, so it's immodest. Would you be doing that same work in a bathing suit? Probably not because it's, it'd be, it could be hazardous. You might feel like it in the summertime. Do you go swimming with a suit on? 
not not appropriate. It seems to mean means to be to being appropriate for the occasion, and there are some occasions that are you don't participate in because you there is nothing appropriate for them. But that's what the word means, and so we are we need to be clothing conscious, not to the point where it becomes our consecration, but we need to be careful about our clothing. And maybe this generation has gone too far the casual way. I can remember when I was growing up, my dad would, we would not even go into town without a suit on, you know, to buy groceries. He would not be seen in public without a suit. And look at some of the Westerns. You ever watch the Westerns? They're nearly all dressed in suits with ties. Characteristic of that time. I can't see that, but but you see there there is in the Bible there is a message there that there is appropriate clothing for each thing that we do. There's a an appropriate public form of clothing, type style of clothing that wouldn't be applicable if you were in your own home. But we have to be we we develop a consciousness about those things. So here he's telling us about the clothing of these seven angels. They were dressed appropriately and they were ministers to Christ and the their clothing reflects their consecration, their conviction, their courage. Now, in verse 7, then one of the four living creatures. Now, have we ever heard about these guys before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, back in the earlier chapters, chapters 4 and chapters 5. These four living creatures, they, they're reappearing. And they gave to the angels... See, they were introduced back there because they're going to have a role to play up front here. So they gave to the angels the what? The seven golden bowls. These golden bowls were filled with the niceties of God. The wrath of God. Now, this is the God who lives forever and ever, age after age after age to agelessness. That's why it's forever and ever. It goes beyond the forever. These seven bowls of the wrath of God were distributed to the seven angels through whom the four living creatures. Now, you go back and reread those in chapters 4 and 5 and uh, remember the principles that we learned back there in those two chapters. So, these 
seven bowls are going to represent now the righteous acts of God. The seven bowls of wrath represent the righteous and true ways of the king of the nations in verse 3, and in verse 4, the righteous acts that have been revealed through these seven bowls of wrath. God's wrath is righteous. So God's wrath is righteous. That's a good summary. So in verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke. From the glory of God and from his power. Now, I'm not reading some verses here because we don't, we're not going to have time to do that. You can go back and do that on your own if you choose. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven seals were finished. No interest into the temple of God here. Now, I want to read some verses. Let's begin. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles first. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And get an idea of what's going on. Um, Under Solomon, Second Chronicles chapter seven and verse one, two, and three. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, by the way, that is an interesting thing in the previous chapter. We haven't got time for that tonight, but it's worthwhile going back there and, and running through that. When when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So whatever, whatever it was, they recognized it as something that represented God. It filled the Lord's house. Everything was to the recognition of God. And it was everywhere in his house, permeating every nook and cranny. All the sons of Israel sing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Now that gives us some language. That gives us a backup on some language. Now I have a statement under verse 8 at the bottom page, bottom of your page on the notes. Although, although those who stand at the sea of glass mingled with fire are priests unto God, we find that out in Revelation 20. 
They are only in the courtyard and cannot enter the temple until the smoke of the glory of God is removed. And when is it going to be removed? When the plagues are fulfilled. So there you have the complete end of the system of Judah and the complete revelation of the gospel of Christ. Am I clear on that? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, verses 8 and 9, which we've already read tonight, but I want to read it again and then make a statement and we'll be done. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 8 and 9. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit, that is, the, the very thing that God is expressing, is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed for how long? While the outer temple is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now, the way... This is the last paragraph on the page. The, the way into heaven was not yet opened. That's why these martyrs were still where? No, they were under the... Uh, they, were there, uh, they were on the sea of... Glass. Sea of glass. I thought they were under... The, under the altar or something. Look, uh, well, that's earlier, in a different different picture, but that's... So, the, the way into heaven was not yet opened until God's wrath upon Jerusalem is fulfilled. So there was a standoff that they were in paradise of Hades on a sea of glass awaiting for this event to be completed. When did the transition take place? It takes place when all the seven bowls of wrath of God are what? Poured out. Are poured out. When God's wrath upon Jerusalem is fulfilled, then heaven is opened. The way into the holiest was not yet made known while the first tabernacle or temple was yet standing. Verse 1 tells us it's finished. His wrath is finished when this is complete. That's right. Not until. Not until. The seven bowls of wrath have to be completed, and when it is, heaven is opened up in its final, final act. Now there is the full entrance into that realm when the wrath of God upon Jerusalem is fulfilled. And notice again, as we read in our text, the way into the holiest, into the presence of God, was not yet made known until the first tabernacle or while the first tabernacle was still standing. So what has to get away what has to happen to the first tabernacle before 
the scheme of redemption is complete. You got it. It has to be knocked down. And we're going to see that happening now, beginning with chapter 16. Any questions tonight? The word tabernacle and temple in the Greek, they're the same. Um, sometimes the word temple refers to the holiest of holies right. in the tabernacle. Right. Sometimes it refers to the same thing as the tabernacle, so you kind of have to look at the context. So it's the context. That's why we, we use the words kind of... We intermingle them probably too, with too much liberty. Yeah. Because now we're going to be introduced to the temple in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Any co- any comments? Any argument? Any opposition? Any tears? Any moanings? Any questions? All right. Anybody? Do we get an idea what we're talking about? We've just looked at chapter uh, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 to 9, a, a short lesson, but there's a lot there because, folks, these are, in, these are introductory to where we're going at chapter 16. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have a solid base from which to work. When we study your word, we are committed to that base to both understand it and to be personally in harmony with it in our thinking. May this week be a week of spiritual prosperity for all people who are bound to what is right. In Jesus' name, amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.